Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now we're taking stock of a week in which the UK entered lockdown as the virus cases continue to grow. Just yesterday, the number of related deaths in the UK jumped by more than 100 in a day for the first time. We also saw several downgrades to UK growth forecasts and the Chancellor unveiling his fourth package to support business. The government grant worth 80% of self-employed people's average monthly profits is facing some criticism for taking too long to come through. But the business secretary, Alex Sharma, has defended the plan, saying local authorities are offering hardship funds for those struggling before new government support payments can start in June. We are doing everything we can to support people, but I completely understand that people will be worried uh, and they want us to get this money uh, to them as quickly as possible. And I can tell you, we are literally working night and day to make sure that system is up and running. That comes as Parliament is closed, but the Shadow Chancellor, John MacDonald, calling for ministers to set up a virtual Parliament. He says MPs should still be able to question the government on behalf of their constituents. Every department now needs to set up clear hotlines so that MPs can have direct contact with ministers and with officials when issues come up. And in that way, yes, it is a virtual parliament, but my goodness, we're in the 21st century. Let's get on with the job. Well, joining us now, I'm very pleased to say, is Caroline Lucas, MP for Brighton Pavilion and co-leader of the Green Party. Caroline, thanks very much for being with us. Um, Let me, first of all, perhaps pick up on that point that John McDonnell was making there. Parliament is now suspended. It's obviously a very important time for Britain Do you see a way of keeping normal parliamentary democracy going in this process? Well, I think there certainly should be. And I coordinated a letter of cross-party MPs um, much earlier in the week saying that we should be shifting to a virtual parliament. You know, it is perfectly possible to do things like online voting. It is perfectly possible to have large Zoom meetings of different select committees. We should be doing far more to drag our parliament into the 21st century. I mean, this has been something that I've been um, campaigning for long before, obviously, the most recent crisis that we face now with with COVID-19. We need to be bringing Parliament uh, up to date and having much more uh, fleet of foot ways of of working. And I think this crisis has simply accentuated just how out of date our parliamentary functioning is. Is the infrastructure there, though, Caroline, to do this at speed? Because uh, it, it makes sense to do it in the long run, but we are faced here with a crisis. And you look at a lot of the government's IT and the outward-facing part of uh, the Parliament website, and for a long time it's looked very, very dated. 
You're absolutely right, and I appreciate we're not going to be able to instantly move to the situation that we would want to see, but I do think more could be done in terms of um, of, of committees meeting online, in terms of being able to um, question ministers online. I mean, this isn't rocket science. Practically every other organization that I'm aware of in terms of environment organizations and so forth, NGOs, non-government organizations, are finding ways of consulting, of discussing, of, of having debates and so forth. And it does feel that the, that the Westminster Parliament is, is way behind on that and some fairly simple things could be done quite quickly were the will to be there. Let, let's move to the more general picture about the way the government has been handling this. I mean, do you feel confident, Caroline, that uh, a government that some people said really was a one-issue government uh, based on Brexit has now managed to get itself into a position where it's sounding as if it's following the science, it's sounding as if it's taking this seriously, or do you take on board what a lot of scientists have said uh, outside the government that it hasn't been nearly quick enough or strong enough? Well, I appreciate it's, it's easy to, to, to sit and, 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 and criticise, and I don't doubt people's good faith and good intentions, but I do think that time and again the government has shown to be behind the curve you know, when it came to the issue of when the lockdown should happen, they were kind of bounced into that because already quite a lot of organisations uh, were already telling people to, to stay home. When it came to the schools closing, again, parents had already been taking their kids out of school before the government came out with the announcement for the, for the schools closing. Um, there was a complete confusion over the advice to stay away from pubs and restaurants. Uh, that was on March the 16th, but the actual order to tell people to stay away and for them to close didn't come until March the 20th. That meant that in a city like Brighton and Hove, which is hugely dependent on that leisure sector, uh, you know, those um, organizations, those pubs and restaurants, weren't able to be able to claim uh, insurance. They didn't have any, any clarity as to what the situation was until four days later came the um, announcement to, to close those establishments. Um, Europeans seem to have done the lockdown much sooner than, than we have I think the public education campaign has quite often been pretty confused. I mean, that was the, the, the very clear sense around, um, you know, what, what the Prime Minister was saying vis-a-vis -vis Mother's Day, just to give you one specific example, saying, yes, yes, he was going to plan to see his mother, and then he had to quickly change the, the, the line and say, no, you shouldn't go and do that. I've been calling right from the start for a proper public education, public information campaign. I raised it again with the Health Minister, Matt Hancock, just a few days ago, he was pretty dismissive. He just said, I'll send you a poster. I, I don't think that's good enough. And we are still finding people in the constituency who, who don't know what the new rules are on a whole range of issues. So I think much more needs to be done on that. And that's even before we get to this discussion about, you know, the lack of the personal protective equipment for NHS staff and carers, the lack of ventilators, the lack of testing. So it feels to me that the government is behind the curve and is constantly having to run to keep up. How are people in Brighton coping with the with with the new lockdown measures? I see a lot of very beautiful countryside in the South Downs that would look very tempting to me right now if I were living down there. Um, I think that the big issue that, that we're certainly seeing in the city, and I have to say I've never seen my my inbox so full and the, and the pressure on my staff so so huge. I think the big thing is just making sure that people get access to the basics and. In somewhere like Brighton, we're, we're blessed with so many wonderful grassroots community groups who are doing so much good community work, reaching out to people who might be self-isolating or, in other, word, in other ways, feeling vulnerable. But even in a city like this, with all of that fantastic work, we are coming across people who are hungry, who don't know where they're going to get their food from, who don't know 
you know, who is going to be able to help them, who don't know whether they can trust the phone numbers on the, on the leaflets coming around. And, and so it feels to me that much more needs to be done to be identifying those people um, who, who are otherwise going to fall through the cracks. Um, and so, for example, we've had situations of people who are, um, who are elderly, who are getting the message that they are not meant to be going out themselves to get food. And yet at the minute, we're not yet seeing the, the, the mechanisms coming into place to ensure that they don't fall through the cracks and to make sure that they do get food. So there's some very basic stuff when it comes to making sure people are safe and secure. And there's lots of questions, lots and lots of questions from freelancers and many others in the city still not clear how they're going to get the funds that they need to, to tide yeah. them over. I mean, I take on board that it, you know it's not getting through as it should, but at least I mean the government is spending money in ways that people have said would would have embarrassed even the Labour administration before. This is the state getting involved on a huge scale with vast amounts of cash. That at least must be the right response. It is absolutely the right response, and I do think you know when all of this is over, it will raise some very interesting questions about you know why we had 10 years of austerity in the way that we did and all of the of the suffering that that caused when it's perfectly clear that so-called magic money trees can be found when the people in power decide that the crisis is big enough now i'm very glad they have found those those money trees right now and they and they absolutely are doing the right thing in terms of getting money to people who need them but after the event after this crisis is over i think there is quite a big debate to be had about public spending about the size of the state about about what we expect from from the state and from our public services, because going into this crisis, you know, the NHS was already, you know, hanging on by, 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 its, by its fingertips in terms of, of the finance that it had. We're suddenly realizing that those workers that have been, you know, basically been treated pretty, pretty badly by, by, by successive governments are suddenly now being called key workers, quite rightly so, and we're suddenly valuing the extraordinary work that carers and cleaners do but for years, you know, they've been marginalized. They've been called low skilled. They've been paid, you know, really badly. So at, at, at a moment when this is done, we really do need to reevaluate what really matters, which, which, which professions, which, which work in, in our society we really want to value. And I hope that we might come up with some different conclusions. And what about the environmental impact? There's been lots of talk, of course, around a, a climate emergency and a lot of the advice around the coronavirus seems to have countered that. Things like not using single use plastic and not using reusable bottles, that sort of thing. Given the scale of the human tragedy and the urgency, would it be fair to put that sort of thing to one side while we get this solved? Well, the climate crisis hasn't gone away. And, and while people's attentions are quite understandably focused on, on, on what feels like the more immediate crisis right now of, of COVID-19, I don't think we should um, in any way think that the climate crisis can, can wait for us. So I, I think to the extent possible, we need to be recognizing that there are multiple crises here. And what we need to be doing is putting in place measures when we're responding to the, to the coronavirus crisis that will also stand us in good stead with the climate crisis. And so what I'm thinking of there, for example, is when businesses are coming to, um, to government asking for bailouts, the aviation industry, for example, I would want to see some conditions being put on to any kind of finance going into very high carbon industries to make sure that they have strategies in place to make sure that their industries are going to be compatible with the so-called Paris climate commitments going forward. We need to be ensuring that the response to this crisis is one that lays the foundations for a better way of responding to the climate crisis hereafter. Because 
that climate crisis is is every bit as um, damaging, much more so even than than this one. So let's make sure that we don't respond to this crisis in a way that makes the climate crisis worse as well. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster. I'm Roger Hearing. And I'm Sebastian Sarlik. We've got to talk about the announcements yesterday around self-employed people. We're going to get into that in just a minute with our very own Edward Evans amid a raft of other stories. Let's tell you what else is happening in the world of politics. We've got the Lib Dem leadership race. Let's start there. Suspended for a year amid the fallout from coronavirus. It had been due to start in May and they were going to finish up in July, but they now say they want to put the country first while they go through what they call the biggest crisis since World War II. Of course, Joe Swinson having to step down at the last election after losing her seat. You've got the likes of Sir Ed Davey, the acting leader, and Leila Moran, the party's education spokeswoman, both expected to stand. It's now going to be May 2021, a long time to go without a leader. Indeed, and meanwhile, the state of the country, very interesting snapshot, really. The number of Britons in poverty has reached a record high of 14.5 million, with the majority living in working families. Now, that's according to the Department for Work and Pensions. They estimated the number of people living in relative low-income households after housing costs as the basis of that. Now, it's the highest number of people living in poverty in the UK since figures were collated first in 2002. It includes increasing number of children estimated to be living below the poverty line, which increased from 4.1 million to 4.2 million during that period. And that is before the full impact of the coronavirus is taken into account, of course. Uh, and then yesterday, you might remember, we brought you the story of uh, industry figures within the housing industry uh, that see the amount of transactions sky falling. Is that a phrase? Falling off a cliff? We'll go with that. The government now getting involved, uh, urging house buyers to put imminent property moves on hold. The housing secretary, Robert Jenrick, saying that those due to move should rearrange a new date. He says even those who are scheduled to move today should rethink about uh, bringing in removal vans. And of course, there's a whole industry that revolves around being in close contact with other people, whether you're viewing, whether you are showing a property, whether you're doing a survey, all of it is about going into other houses, which is the Mm. one thing we can't do right now. Not keen on it. But here's a message from The Express today. Frederick Forsyth, the novelist, writes and says, We'll survive this because official pessimism is always wrong. In a long lifetime, he says, I've never seen our old country in such a comprehensive mess. Health issues apart, our entire economy is being systematically dismantled. The damage being done will take a minimum 10 years to repair. Parts of it will never return. He says, it's all very well our Chancellor handing out hundreds of billions in compensation, but one day all that will have to be repaid. 
Our children, possibly our grandchildren, will be paying for life. Even if coronavirus was conquered tomorrow, he says, hundreds of thousands of small businesses will never reopen and a million-plus redundant employees will have to start all over again. So I think very much the voice of the Express being heard uh, in full there um, with a sense that, um, yeah, you know, we could make it through. We made it through a world war, all that kind of stuff. Well, let's run with that idea. For more on all of this, let's bring in Edward Evans, our Brexit editor. But I feel like we're beyond titles now. We're all coronavirus reporters. Uh, Edward, let's start with that question. How is the country going to pay all of this off? We're looking at more than £65 billion. If you tally that up with what we saw after the financial crisis in today's money, it's a lot more than that. So really, in recent history, this is the most we've seen coming out of any government. Yeah, and for, and for Chancellor Exchequer Rishi Sunak, the priority is very much write the cheque first and worry about how to pay for late, pay for it all later. Um, the short answer is it's all going to get paid for out of extra borrowing, and a lot of it. The Institute for Fiscal Studies estimates it could be as much as £200 billion, um, compared with a £55 billion budget deficit that was forecast. Uh, don't forget, of course, that, this, that the economy will shrink, tax revenue will fall, and spe- wealth spending on welfare will have to increase. You've seen the recent statistics on universal credit where you know, half a million people applied for universal credit in just nine days. This is going to put a great deal of strain on the government finances over a very extended period of time. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, the, it was interesting hearing the obviously a big part of that money is going to come paying for the self-employed or trying to keep them going. And we heard the Rishi Sunak plans on that front. But since then, I have to say, I've, I've heard nothing but scepticism from people I know who are self-employed yep. saying none of this money is going to come until June. And they imagine that the amount of form filling that will go on before that will almost be beyond uh, the, the government's abilities to get it through even by then. I think self-employed people may take a very sceptical view of any benefit that involves HMRC, um, the tax authorities. There are big questions. They've got to wait until June and when the payment will be backdated to March. And that's going to leave many uh, really having to apply for welfare um, and the less than generous universal credit, just £94 a week. Um, And the the first universal credit payment takes about five weeks to arrive. Um, And bad luck if you've only just started out being self-employed. You're not going to be entitled to Sunak's grants anyway. Uh, yeah, I saw him pointing people towards the welfare system if they were self-employed within the last year. Uh, and amid all yeah. of this, all of this spending, Jeremy Corbyn saying his manifesto was vindicated. Do we think the national psyche could change after this? I hate to make war references, but there is a parallel in the sense that there is a common enemy here. And after World War Two, of course, we got this big joint sense of altruism and out of it sprung the NHS and the welfare system more widely. Uh, Do you think that could be set to happen again, especially after a decade of austerity? I'd be deeply sceptical about drawing a historic comparison. I think parts of the welfare state owed their origins to long before the Second World War broke out. I think with this, it's probably too early to say whether the national psyche has changed. It's certainly uh, we can't say at this point. Um, on Corbyn's uh, spending plans, I think it's significant it's taken a global pandemic um, to put them in the mainstream. I mean, it is a time of crisis. Uh, yes, Johnson is certainly going to face some questions once this is all over uh, on the effects of austerity on the National Health Service. But again, some of these trends go back a long way. The number of beds in the NHS have been shrinking for 20 to 30 years before, long before austerity. Um, yes, uh, Rishi Sunak said some of the tax perks the self-employed historically enjoyed will disappear after this. But all of this is a long way off. And the thing to stress here is we are really only in the foothills of what will be a very steep epidemiological curve here.
Yeah, and if we are making war references, I think it's it's interesting. We actually only finished paying off our war debts within the last five years as a country, going back all the way to the Second World War. But meanwhile, right. um, Ed, the um, the Lib Dems are going to put their leadership on hold in terms of the uh, the contest. The Labour one, I think, has gone too far for that to be possible. We could have a new Labour leader very quickly. Um, but in general, is party politics on hold, do you think? Certainly on hold, I think, you know, this is about government rather than party politics at the moment. Um, it's certainly, I mean, suspending the leadership election certainly puts the, the Liberals in a very difficult position uh, with only an acting leader at this point. Um, part of, um, there are some issues in Labour at the moment about its response to the coronavirus crisis. It's been hampered by the fact that Corbyn is still here and they're still trying to go through that leadership contest. But both main opposition parties in this country are without at this point, full-time, permanent leadership. Um, and that it, it stops them from, 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 it could be argued that that stops them from scrutinising or attacking the government, uh, holding the government to account in the same way that they would normally. Um, and it's very striking in this that you know, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak's ratings have actually gone up through this crisis uh, so far. Do you think that things would hot up a little bit if that confidence in the government starts to ebb? Tim Ross was saying yesterday that uh, we could see a little bit more conflict once you get p- presumably Keir Starmer in and a real opposition. Uh, and as these things pay, play out, because at this stage they've promised a lot of money. But the question is, is it actually going to work? Yeah, I think for the government, the, the pressure at the moment is on execution, getting that money to the people who need it, getting the beds clear, getting the ventilators in place. And responding to this, again, as I keep saying, we are in the very early stages of this. And the real, um, the real wave hasn't, is only yet to begin. So I think you know, the, the government, of course, is going to come under pressure in this. Uh, and, and much more criticism will be levied on the government as we, as we go through this. It is very early days at this point. And speaking of issues on which party politics is rather crucial, I mean, Ed, wearing your um, your previous hat or your current hat, I suppose, your Bre- the Brexit editor hat, we have hardly talked about Brexit. And yet it does seem almost impossible that the timetable for the Brexit negotiations can continue under this. But the government's not really given any solid, no, uh, solid indications as to whether they actually are going to extend the period. No, but it's very hard to see how they can do anything other than delay at this point. I think even the Olympics have been postponed by a year. You know, the negotiations are on ice, effectively. Uh, both Barnier and, and, and his British counterpart uh, have been in quarantine. Um, they're trying to do video conferences, but they don't really work. Um, so it's very hard to see how you could get to a deal uh, by December, which is, of course, the deadline. Now, that presupposes, though, that Johnson actually wanted a deal in the first place. And it may be that this gives him a chance, gives him space uh, to pursue that Australian-style no-deal Brexit that he'd been suggesting uh, all along. So, again, we're still some way off. Uh, The the virus may may take a long time to clear, pandemic may take a long time to work its way through the system. Um, If it's a short thing, which which Johnson seemed to be betting on, it may be that they'll re- they want to return to the Brexit negotiations in June once the pan- if the pandemic's over by then. If it drags out really longer than that, it's very hard to see how that he can do anything other uh, than delay at this point. 
And is the UK working with the EU in any sense on its response here? Because at the end of the day, we're still in the transition period. There's still a relationship here. Uh, and, and given the, the, the geographical spread, it might make sense, but politically maybe less so. This is the extraordinary thing. I think if you look at the, the supply of ventilators, there is an EU-wide procurement system, um, which the UK um, has had a, shall we say, very confused relationship with. Initially, Johnson refused to sign up to it, uh, and Downing Street saying, you know, we're not a part, Britain is not part of the member of the EU. Uh, then the EU reminded them, actually, yes, Britain was still eligible to join, and that they were asked to join, and then Downing Street suggesting that they mislaid the emails from the EU but might want to sign up on. I mean, this is all very, it, it, it all goes to this heart. There's a big question for Johnson here, and the big danger here is that he's seen to prioritise Brexit over getting ventilators and uh, to beds and, and handling with this crisis. So although, you know, we're obviously all focused on the coronavirus, um, you know, Brexit is still there influencing things in the background and will be a prism through which people look at coronavirus afterwards in any of the inquiries. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.